Well, so actually, the, uh, what we just read goes along with um, today's sermon. So if you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, and we're going to be reading 1 through 18. And we're, we are going to talk about the, uh, the incarnation today, and that's, that's a, a theological word for, um, for Christ taking on flesh. If you know Spanish, you know that, that carne means meat, right? So think about it in that sense, in carne, in flesh, in meat, and that's all it means, you know, when Christ takes on flesh. So uh, that's, the, that's the word for incarnation. That's what it means. So uh, today we're going to talk about that in light of, of course, Christmas, because Christmas is essentially about that, even though we don't really know when Christ was born. Um, you know, actually, most people think it was probably in the spring at some time. So it wasn't December 25th. But, you know, that is the uh, the traditional time when we celebrate the Lord and his birth. And there we go. All right. So Philippians 2 is where we'll be today. And um, it is a it's a it's a lengthy passage. We're not going to be able to deal in depth with all of it, but we are, I think, going to get uh, hopefully by God's grace, the gist of it. So let's let's uh, let's pray and then we'll read it and then we'll go. Father, we praise you. We pray now for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that you do all things well. We know that you give good gifts to your children. So we pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit now. Give us much grace, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, so, so Philippians 2, and you know one of the things about Scripture is, so what you're going to see in this passage is you're going to have a lot of this passage is going to be dealing with um, our behavior and our actions and how, are we're, how we're supposed to live in light of certain things. The difference, though, is this. What you find in Scripture, so, so you know, in the world, a lot of times people are like, well, um, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I try to do what's right. I try to live in the right way, things like that. You hear, I mean, even even pagans talk that way. Atheists, skeptics, everybody, you know, to a certain extent, you know, everyone wants to be good, at least according to some kind of standard. Well, in Scripture, you also have a lot of um, behavioral um, requirements, I guess. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of imperatives. Do this. Don't do that. And the difference, though, with Scripture is that it's always in relationship to Christ. Because if it's not in relationship to Christ, it becomes moralism, becomes pietism. You know, it's like, hey, do good just because. Whereas in Scripture, what you find is theology is always very practical. What you, what you know about Christ should, should move you to act in a certain way. And that's what this passage is about. Um, so let's start in verse 1. Of chapter two. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also have the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I'm going to read the rest, uh, leave the rest for a little later. But what we have here is if you, if you go back to verse 1, notice all of these these things. Notice he says, therefore, first of all. So therefore, he's always, it's always a, uh, he's always denoting that, that he's, he's trying to alert you to something. It's the conclusion of something. That's what therefore is. So therefore what? Therefore, if there's any, now notice all these words here, okay? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the spirit, any affection and compassion. Okay, those are all actions. Those are all things that we should be doing. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's eight, but humi with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's, that's nine. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also have the interests of others. And that's that's 10 things that Paul says to do. That's 10 things, right in one, in, in what, three verses, 10 things. And you're looking at that. If you actually look at this, you know, there's no way on earth that you can actually accomplish this in the flesh, right? There's no way that you can do this apart from God supernaturally giving you the ability to do this. Um, and, and we all, I mean... You know, you can imagine what it's like in, in every single one of our lives when we're talking about how hard is it to actually um, consider others as more important than yourselves? How hard is that, right? I mean, that really is difficult. And and that can be that can be your own home. That can be, you know, with, with wives and husbands. That can be with uh, employers and employees or vice versa. That can be even with, uh, with politicians and your political parties and things like that, right? And so when you're looking at this, now, now let me back up and say this, though, okay? This is primarily dealing with the church, all right? So, but in the, in what I'm trying to do is in the, in the general scheme of things, this is a real impossibility to do, right? Because we have the flesh and the flesh is always at war with us and the flesh is always trying to get the upper hand and it's trying to make us um, believe that we deserve certain things, right? We're, we're you know, in a certain, to a certain extent, we're all, uh, we all feel like we're entitled to things. Um, you know, if you think about whenever tragedy strikes, whenever bad things happen, and a lot of times people are saying, well, you know, why, 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 why this, right? Why didn't this happen instead of this? And why me? Or why, why, why this person? And, and that's human. That's something we all ask. You know, when tragedy strikes, whether it's our home or whether it's someone else's, it's very easy to kind of try to try to play God and say, well, God, that's not fair for that to happen to them, or that's not fair for that to happen to us. And the reality, though, is this. If you think about what we actually deserve as humans, what do we actually deserve, right? We deserve to be crushed the moment we're conceived because we're born in sin. That's what we deserve. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. In sin, my mother conceived me, the Bible says. That's what we deserve. But of course, you know, in God's grace, and not to mention, we, we come out of we come out of our mom's womb. We live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world that's sinful. Why is the world fallen? Because of because of our sin, right? Because of Adam's sin, yes, but also because of our sin. And so death and disease and chaos and all these things, tragedy, these things happen because of our sin. There's a curse on this world. And yet, despite this world being cursed, we have a God who does bestow good gifts on every single one of us, but especially as children. So that, like Christ says, you know, God makes sure even the, even the wicked man has sunlight and rain. 
Even, you know, even the unrighteous one, the one who blasphemes God every day, he still has air to breathe. And so when we're looking at things like this and we're, we're asking ourselves, okay, what is the root of, of, of selfishness, I guess? Because notice he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So how can I, as, as a person who is born in sin, who loves my sin, who by nature am very, very selfish, I'm very selfish. And as Christians, guess what? We're still very selfish. And that otherwise Paul wouldn't have to say this, right? If 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 Christians have already achieved some kind of perfection, Paul's not this is just wasted words here. But he knows that even Christians need to be reminded, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, that's lowliness of mind, considering myself lowly. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Right. Whether so. So especially, you know, it's, it's almost like to the extent that we do things, all of a sudden we we even if it's unconscious, you know, it's, it can be it usually maybe is, you know, to the extent that we're doing things or, or or we're abstaining maybe from sin or that, you know, we we look at other sin and we say, well, at least we haven't done that. It's, it's happening. I guarantee it's happening in our hearts all the time that we're elevating ourselves. We're lifting ourselves up. Even it's again, even if it's unconscious, you know, the Puritans used to say, Lord, I want to repent even of my repentance because I know that when I, even when I repent, which we should do, we should always be repenting. But even in my repentance, there's a stain of selfishness there and there's a stain of pride there because now whenever I go and I repent, I'm also, there's something secret within me that's saying, oh yeah, but you know, now that I've repented, so-and-so has, you know, so-and-so over here hasn't repented. And if I did it, why can't they do it? Like, what's the deal? And so you kind of start seeing yourself as, as spiritually a little more elevated than they are. Or, um, you know, even as, you know, like as pastors, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, we, we should all, we have all, we all of us have certain roles in the church and I'm not denying that. Right. But it's, you know, if, if there's, if there's trash on the floor and the, you know, myself or whoever, and we're like, oh, you know, I'm the pastor. I don't have to pick that up. That's exactly what he's saying not to do. Right. This is, this is for all of us, right? There's no one who, who, who is uh, above the duty of picking up trash. There's no one who's, who's um, you know, even, you know, when, when it, the, the beauty of Protestants, I guess you can say it that way, is that there's no there's 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 never this idea that there are certain classes of Christians that are higher than any other class. We're all part of the bride of Christ in Christ. We're all part of the, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, although we all have different roles and functions within his body. We're still, in a sense, all on the same level. Spiritually speaking, we're all on the same level. And so it's, it's absurd for us. And, and, and here's the beauty. And I'm pointing out the, third, the things that Paul's saying here. Um, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. But look at this. If that's all he said and he just went on to the next subject, that's moralism, right? The world can say this. You can, you can hear you know, Joel Osteen say this. Right. I mean, you can it doesn't have to be you can hear people say this without any gospel. And what's it become? It becomes moralism. It becomes it becomes, um, you know, just uh, like a feel good thing. You know, hey, do this. This is how you should live. This is how you should act. But with Paul, it's always we should act this way because of the example that we have in Christ, because Christ himself did this first. And so and then he begins talking about the incarnation. See, the incarnation, and, and, and here's the thing with the incarnation, you know, or really with Christ in general, you know, we think of, um, we think of the incarnation, especially the atonement when Christ pays for our sins on the cross. 
and, 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 you know, correct me if, if I'm wrong here. Um, but, you know, I, in my mind, I think most Christians see Christianity like the most important part of Christianity is having your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die. And now that's important, right? I'm not trying to downplay that. And perhaps that is the most important thing. But what I do want to say is that there are things that are as important as that. And that is before we even die and get to heaven, we have a certain responsibility, a certain example for how to live in Jesus Christ. So the point, one of the purposes of Christ coming to earth was not just to die for our sins. And that is, now that probably is the most important part. But the other thing, the other, the, the other um, purpose of him coming to earth is to demonstrate to us how to live, how to, how to walk, how to speak, to show us who God is. Now, Notice this when he says this, okay? Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, he begins talking about this in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, now, now think of this, okay? Behold Christ before he comes to earth. Where is he? Before he comes to earth, where is he? Right, he's in heaven. What's happening? He's being worshipped by angels. He is being, he's in a place where there's no sin, there's no death, there's no chaos, there's perfect peace, there's perfect bliss. He has no enemies up there because his enemies have been thrown out. It's just every, everything is about him, worshiping him. Not only that, it's Christ in Colossians 1, it says it's Christ who holds all things together. So when you're talking about the very universe that we live in today, the stars, the ground, the grass, the, 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 you know, the bumblebees, everything in the universe is held together by Christ. This universe cannot operate with G, without Jesus Christ. Everything is held together by him. Think of, the, think of the grandeur of that, man, the stars, the moon. I mean, if you, I, you, know, you can fit, I think it's like a million earths into the sun. You can fit the sun you know, a million times in the galaxy, and there's billions of galaxies, and all of these things are held together by Christ. You know, it's, 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 if, you, if you think about where Christ was, not to mention this, the essence of Christ as God, the, the essence of God and the essence of a human being is completely different. That's what it means to be holy. So Christ in heaven is completely different, completely separate from everything else in the universe. He's nothing like anything else. So when you're talking about Christ taking on flesh, and I've heard it said, I absolutely believe it, it really is more mysterious than even the Trinity itself. How this God who is, in his essence, different than anything material. I mean, the, the, you know, like Christ says when he meets the lady at the, the, the woman at the well, and she's saying, you know, God is this, God is this. Christ says God is, God is a spirit, right? That's what Christ, God is a spirit. So in order for Christ to come to earth, he has to, now, notice this. He existed in the form of God. I was getting ahead of myself. He existed in the form of God. That means what Paul's saying there is he is God. He existed in the form of God. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's always been a tough translation. Um, the, the, what that means is that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be utilized, a thing to be asserted. He wasn't robbing God, in other words. He wasn't, um, in other words, he's not saying this. He's not saying, well, because I'm God, I don't have to do this because I'm God. Now, if anybody in the world could have said, hey, I'm not coming to earth. I'm not going to take on flesh. I'm not, not only flesh, but the flesh, not the pre-fall flesh of, of, of Adam before he fell, but the post-fall flesh. 
So he's born without sin, but he still takes on the flesh of post-fall Adam. So now he is exposed to tiredness and fatigue and, and, and weakness and certain things like that. That's why you see that he does get tired. He does need to eat. He does need to drink. He's not pre-fall Adam. And yet, if anybody could have said, I'm, I'm not doing that, it could have been Christ, right? He's saying, listen, I'm up here. I'm being worshipped by angels. I'm not going to earth. I run that earth. I run the universe, right? Those eyes that they have in their skulls, I'm the one that gave them those eyes. Those eyes work because I'm giving them the ability to work every millisecond. He could have said, I'm not coming to God. But Paul's point is, is he did not regard equality with God a thing to be utilized. A thing that's just because he's God, he doesn't say, well, I'm not coming there. And y'all see, the, y'all see the application, right? If Christ is over here, say, hey, I'm God, but I'm still going to take on flesh for the, for the sake, not of righteous men, right? Not of, not of these angels who have never sinned before, but of sinful men. Then Paul say, well, who are we to turn around and say, well, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not doing that. Or I'm better than so-and-so. I'm not like so-and-so, right? He say, no, we don't have any ground for that. Christ himself didn't do that. So who are we to do that? Now look at verse 7. He emptied himself. And there's been a big, uh, I wouldn't say it, well, actually, it's not a big debate. But, you know, uh, same thing with the translation. You're like, well, what does it mean he emptied himself? What, it, what does that mean? Um, and the best way to look at that is he, he laid aside his privileges. And you could also say that there are certain things. So, so what that does not mean is that Christ stopped being God. That does not mean that Christ left his attributes up in heaven, his power, his deity. His, that's where, um, you know, we said a little bit of that in the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism this morning. But when we talk about Christ, Christ, Christ has um, two natures. He's one person, two natures. So he's fully God and he's fully man. Fully God, fully man. So he takes on flesh but when he comes to earth guess guess what he's still upholding the universe by the word of his power even when he's in a manger even when he's a baby he's still holding all things together he's still god he's not some you know in other words yes he's human but he's also holding everything together he emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men and this is to me i mean if you think about this this is this is in my mind, this is probably just as astonishing as anything else. Think of Christ, okay? So again, you have, you have God who's in heaven being worshipped by angels. And by the way, this has been spoken of for, for, for centuries, that, that, God was, that something was going to happen so that people's sins are forgiven. But no one really knew exactly how that was. We, we've seen glimmers of it. We saw that in the theology class that we've been doing. You know, you have glimmers of it in the Old Testament. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise that, that the seed is of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. You have the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his seed, and he's the father of the faith. Um, you have Moses and all the sacrifices, the Passover, like we talked about during the Lord's Supper, the lamb that is slain. You have all of these, you have all of these insights, but then here Christ comes, and what you have here is the God of the universe taking on the form of, of a bond servant, of a bond servant. Now, what does that mean, right? Being made in the likeness of men. Again, um, I, I want to read something actually from uh, Bob Inc. I kept, I kept thinking uh, Burkhoff, but Bob Inc. And he says this. He says, those who consider the incarnation impossible. Have you guys ever, I mean, if you think about the incarnation, 
it'll blow your it really does explode your head. Think about it. How can God take on flesh? How can that how can that be possible? Really? How how is that possible? How can God whose essence again is completely different? How can he take on flesh? And to me in my mind, this is what around the time of Christmas, you know, we should really stop and just ponder this. How can God take on flesh? Now, if you're a skeptic, and in fact, in most of our, I think even in our, the whole Western culture is so anti-supernatural. You know, it's just like, oh, that's impossible. Just like the resurrection, just like all these other aspects, you know, they say that's impossible. Let's move on. That, that's, that can't happen. Well, we know it is possible. So here's what he says. Those who accept, um, excuse me, he says this. He says, we must add that if God was able to create and could reveal himself to beings, essentially distinct from him, then he must also be able to become human. Okay, think about this. He creates everything. He creates the, the, the immaterial spiritual God, creates a material universe. That very fact alone demonstrates that because God created the universe, the material universe, he's able to come into it. He created it. And not only did he create it, he says, for while the incarnation is certainly different from all other revelation. It is also akin to it. It is its climax, crown, and completion is similar to Scripture. How is God able to speak to us who are humans and he's God? How is that possible? Through Scripture, right? He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. So God is able to do this. And not only that, but um, if you think about creation itself, go back to the garden. Think about God creating Adam. Adam is made in the image of God. Well, when God makes Adam, God already has in mind his son who's going to take on flesh. Before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. So before the foundation, before there was a star in the sky, God already had in mind, my son is going to take on the, the flesh of Adam and his seed and come and redeem a people. So when God is preparing Adam and he's working on Adam, you know, part of the thing that, about being a, a, a made in God's image is that we're called to be representatives of God. And here comes the God man. When he takes on flesh, God had already prepared the human being to be able to be taken by God whenever he comes to earth in the incarnation. This, it's not like God, you know, in, in, in you know, 2000 or 2000 years ago in the year zero, or some people say like four BCE. It's not like, it's not like God was then like, Oh, I know I'll make Jesus Christ into a human. That's what we'll do. He'll take on flesh. It's not that, right? God knew that this. So in other words, even when it comes to the design of the human being, this was done with the intention of God's son taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And so when Paul's talking about Christ coming to earth as a bondservant, look what it, well, it says in the act of creation, God already had the Christ in mind. In that sense, the creation itself already served as preparation for the incarnation. The world was so created that when it fell, it could, be, it could again be restored. Humanity was organized under a single head in such a way that sinning, it could again be gathered together under another head. Adam was appointed, uh, Adam was so appointed as head that Christ could immediately take his place. I mean, that's, you know, you can, you, that's something to just ponder and, and try to, again, I, I just personally don't think there's anything more mysterious than God taking on flesh. And here he is. And it's so much more than just, uh, a, a, you know, Christ in a manger or Christ even as an adult. There's so much more going on here. 
And so here's what Paul is saying. Not only does he take on the form of a human, he comes in the form of a bondservant, not a king, not a prince, not a guy with chariots, not a guy with lassos. He's not some great Olympic guy. You know, he's a guy, he comes uh, in the form of a bondservant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You all see the repetition there, right? It says even, okay, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again, you think about it. Here God is, the God, God who is author of life, and he's up in the heavens, and he knows when he takes on flesh, he's going to come for the purpose of dying. And, and, and now he, Paul is saying not only does he go and die, you know, I guess technically, I mean, um, actually, I wouldn't say this, but I, you know, I guess you could propose in your head at least saying, well, why didn't Christ die like in the middle of the desert? Why didn't Christ die in, you know, like in, I don't know, in Peter's mom-in-law's house? Why did he have to die on a cross? Y'all ever thought of that? Like, why did he actually have to go to the cross to die? Why, why did it have to be in front of everybody? Well, that's why. It had to be in front of everybody. And it says that in Romans 3. If you go to Romans 3, Paul tells us this. So Paul wrote Philippians. Paul wrote Romans. Paul says in Romans 3, look at uh, verse 24, talking about Christ, Christ, okay, well, talking about us and what Christ does for us, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption was an old slave word. It meant that when you were in bondage, when you were, you had no rights of your own, somebody goes and they, they, they buy you out of slavery. That's what Christ does in redemption, whom God displayed, here it is, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So he says right here, God displayed him publicly in front of everybody so that everybody could see him. If you think about Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the place where Gentiles came because there were Gentile Jews. They came there. Jews came there. It really was, in a sense, the center of the universe, aside from Rome. It was one of the pockets where from Jerusalem, word goes out. People are going to go back. Think of the diaspora, you know, where people are, are leaving Jerusalem in masses and they're going out. So whatever happens in Jerusalem gets around, in other words. And here Christ is in Jerusalem, publicly displayed as a propitiation. That means a wrath bearer to turn away the wrath of God for us. And then he, Paul says this, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And then he repeats it, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, so what's, what, what, what's the purpose here? He's doing it publicly. God is doing this publicly, in a sense, as vindication for having passed over the sins previously committed in the Old Testament time. So think about David's sin and Moses' sin and Abraham's sin and all the sins of the saints in the Old Testament who are now in heaven. How are they in heaven? Because Christ died for their sins. So in the Old Testament, you're looking at David and you're saying, man, the guy sleeps with the guy's wife and all this stuff. How is, how is that, how is God just if he's overlooking all these sins? Well, on the cross, God says, behold, my son. I didn't overlook those sins. That's the difference between Christianity and all the religions. God doesn't overlook our sins. He crushes Christ in our place. He doesn't overlook our sins. He judges our sins in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is that is the epitome. I mean, if you're talking about humility, lowliness of mind, you're not going to, it's, it's, it would be 
quite impossible to find a better example than Jesus Christ, who had everything, who himself was God, and yet he comes to earth not just to say pretty things, not just to impart this revelation of what God is and, and the things that he says, but he comes to earth for the express purpose of dying and suffering. And if you think of Christ's life, every single moment of Christ's life was a moment of suffering. Think of that. Every single waking moment of his life. When you leave heaven to come to earth, you're going to notice the difference in the sense of, well, first of all, just a practical sense, you know, from the time he's two up, he has people try to kill him. You know, when he starts his ministry, even eventually his own disciples flee. So his whole life is a life of suffering. And Paul is, that's what Paul is saying here. You know, you talk about like how to live. If you take Christ away from practical living, then you don't have any motive, right? You don't have any reason to do it. It's just kind of like, like a feel good, oh, I'll do it just because, right? But what he's saying here is we have the opportunity to live in obedience to Christ as an example of what Christ has done. And I would say that that's, in a sense, what the incarnation has also is also about. So Christmas, if you want to say it that way, right? Christmas is also about that. Um, look at verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him. So this is the exaltation of Christ. A lot of times people talk about Christ's humiliation when he comes to earth. He's actively obedient, meaning every word, thought, and deed that he does, that he says, that he thinks is always done in accordance with love for God and God's glory. Passive obedience, meaning that he goes to the cross and the wrath of God afflicts him. He, it's not like the father's twisting Christ's arm and making him do it. And he's like, Christ is like, no, I don't really want to. No, he willingly goes to the cross. He's passively obedient. He obedient. He passively takes on the, the the judgment that we should that we should have, that we deserve. And so, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the to the glory of God the Father. And like I say, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time to actually going to all of this, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure that most of you have heard this before, but um, if you imagine, I mean, just, just in, a, in, a, in the sense of thinking of every tongue in this universe is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and there's a day, you know, and, and, and in that sense, there's a few things to look at here. You know, um, we, we, we have a lot of hope in this, you know, in the sense of we look around our world today and it's, it's filled with chaos and pollution and not, not like uh, – <laughs> pollution from trash, but moral pollution, sin, evil, darkness. And we're looking around, right? And, and what this is saying is that there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day when everyone is going to realize that Christ is Lord. Now, there might be people that are, um, well, they'll be kicking tooth and nail against it, right? But at the same time, they'll still be saying Christ is Lord. You know, in, in Revelation, it talks about how people are weeping and gnashing their teeth in hell. They're weeping and gnashing their teeth, and they're angry, and they're mad. They're upset. Why are they upset? Because Christ is Lord. They're upset because Christ is God, and he's the judge of all the universe. And, and also, it's also saying this. You know, when we're thinking of this, we're thinking, we really are thinking of submission in the sense of submitting to Christ, right? Submitting to the, to the one true king. And when you get rid of the, the, this right here, when you get rid of Christ as king, somebody else is going to rise up and be the king. And, and if you look at all, and I, this is, you know, I'm not going to get political here, but think about where, ty where tyranny begins is, is right here, right? You remove Christ. Somebody else is going to be up there. 
because we as, as human beings, we have, we, our natures are idolaters. God has created us to worship things, to see things as, as, as you know, to have something as, as our God. And if it's not the Christ of the universe whom we bow to now, the hearts of men are going to place something else there, whether it's the state, whether it's nature, whether it's another religion, whether it's, you know, yourself, humanism. It's the way it's always worked. So Paul here is saying that every tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord. There's going to be a day when everyone knows that even if people don't like that, even if people hate that, they're still going to recognize that. But then I want to end with this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. And this is how Paul is. It's almost like he is uh, bookending this, you know. So he starts out with all these practical things, you know, be selfless. Think of others as, as uh, uh, think of yourself as lower, as beneath others. And now he ends this by going back to the same thing where he's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that mean I have to like, it's, it's up to me in order to be saved? Well, let me read it again. I mean, that's exactly, let's see. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. That sounds like that I have to do it, right? But then you read the next verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? So this is sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. If you look back at the time when you were first saved and you look at where you are right now, there should be prog progress, right? There should be some progress there in your life. And you say, okay, well, I think I've grown a little in Christ, the things of God. Um, and now I look at that and I say, well, is that me doing that or is that God doing that? Well, it's both in a sense. God is the author. God's the one who's doing that, right? But it's us who is, who, who, who's putting that into practice. We're seeing it in, in real time. We're the ones doing it. So sanctification, God is working in us, but we're also working that out as far as what God is doing in us, okay? Um, but now, do all things without grumbling or disputing? Is that is that even possible? That's, I mean, really, I, that's not, I mean, if you think of this, this is, think about how hard this is. That's a command from God, right? Do all things. Notice he says all things. Do most things. Do things that aren't that difficult without, no, he says do all things without grumbling or disputing. You're like, well, I can't do that. And the goal here, again, is to look to Christ, right? If we're looking for, well, how do we do this? Look to Christ and let him be the example. Let him be the model. Christ did all these things. You're not going to find one time in Christ's life where he grumbles or complains to God and say, God, this is ridiculous. What am I doing here? I, I'm ready. I, you know, I want to go back. Not one time. And if anybody had any license to grumble or complain, it was Christ. And that's what all this is about, you know, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So what Paul says then is the same thing we can look at today and the same thing that Paul is saying to us, well, God through Paul through the preaching, is saying to us today, continue. We have to continue looking at Christ. We have to see ourselves as not better than one another, but in need of grace as much as anybody else in the universe. And we really are. You know, it's one thing to say it, but seriously, if you actually consider and contemplate our own hearts and how far our even our thought life goes, and let's say, you know, if you give us like five minutes, we, we are in serious need of grace. 
But thankfully, we have an example in Jesus Christ who came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He was sinless in every way. And so as Christmas season comes around, really try to contemplate the, 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 the mystery, but also the, the beauty of this, not just like in a, an ivory tower, you know, theological way. I'm just going to kick my feet up and just kind of sit back and, and, and think about these things, but really in our own lives with our own families, at work, with our friends, with people who don't like us, people who are lost, you know, people who disagree with us. Think about how Christ responded in those situations. How did Christ act? And I'm far from, I'm far from the goal, you know, and I think there's room for improvement in all of us. And, and Paul's point to write this to the Philippians is there was room for improvement with them as well. But be encouraged, all right? In other words, don't be discouraged by it, but let's, let's, you know, Gird our loins, take up, you know, take up the 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 uh, the armor of faith, and and by God's grace, try to try to make progress in this stuff. Not so that we can be saved, but because we've already been saved, because we already have heaven. So now let's live for the glory of God on earth and glorify Him. And uh, we have a purpose in life now. Before we even get to heaven, we have purpose, right? To look at Christ and to try to imitate Him. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll we'll sing. Father, we praise you this morning, this afternoon. We praise you for this, uh, for Christ. Lord, we praise you for his example. Lord, we can never do adequate justice to your word. There's always more to be said. There's always more to, to bring out. And, and Father, we know you're good. We know that your Holy Spirit works in ways that are beyond our comprehension and, and, and to an extent that's far more glorious than we can ever imagine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that now. We pray that the word that was preached and the word that comes from, from you through Paul, we pray, Lord, that it would truly resonate in us and help us to grow in these, these areas, Lord. Help us in our fight against the flesh, our fight against the self. Lord, help us this, this season, this Christmas season to to be absorbed in the things of Christ, to be wrapped up in the, the beauty and the majesty and the mystery of, of the things of you, Lord, that, that we would spend not just this season, but all of our lives on earth contemplating and beholding the Christ, the God-man who came to seek us, who came to save us. We thank you that you've done it. Lord, help us to grow in these things. Continue helping us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We know that it's you who works in us, so we give you all the, all, the, uh, all the glory today, Lord, all the praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.